0: Well, as Alan said, my name is Zach Wiggins. I'm the minister of students at the Valley, and uh, it's just an awesome honor to be a part of of your worship today Uh, and be invited to to lead a little bit of that worship as well. When Alan uh, originally asked me, I was like, no way, let's do this. This is going to be awesome. So uh, if you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine, we're going to start in verse 28 today. Before we start reading, i like to look at the title of my sermon uh, I had to throw Alan for a loop and give him this title. Uh, and that title is What to Expect When You're Expecting. <laughs> what to expect when you're expecting. See, the, the Gospel of Luke uh, gives us an unexpected story of Jesus over and over and over and over again. It starts with Jesus in a manger. Uh, it starts with shepherds, the last people who should hear about the coming king being the first people to hear about the coming king. And, and, and Luke continues to give us an unexpected version of what we think the Messiah, what the king is going to be. if. Any of you have had kids, surely you've heard of the book, What to Expect when you're expecting. Uh, you also know if you've read it, that it doesn't prepare you at all. That's right. <laughs> at all. Uh, you you can have as many kids as you like. You'll never expect what the Lord is gonna gift you through a child. Uh, you're never gonna expect exactly what all that entails. There's so many things in, in raising children and, and just even being around kids, it's even if you Even if you haven't raised children, you notice that kids are unexpected. They do crazy things. Uh, You'll never be ready as a parent, as a helper to a parent, whatever that may be. There's so many things that happen that we simply don't expect. Uh, And really, that's true of life. There's so many things that happen that we don't expect. Anybody the vacation planner for their home? Who plans the vacations? Anybody? All right. All right. So, we got Mary. does it go as exactly as you planned, Mary? Never, absolutely never. So my aunt, we have a big family vacation, the Wiggins family does on my dad 's side, and it 's something like twenty people go and live in one house for a week somewhere uh, and it 's always we always have these huge expectations it 's always amazing you know we 're thinking oh we 're going to go to upstate New York this year, and we 're going to uh, you know stay on this lake and we 're going to go see all these things and then some of those things happen, and even when some of those things happen, they're not, they don't really play out as we expect. We get a little disappointed. Maybe we don't get to go do the one thing that we really planned on doing because somebody else has planned something else. So many times we have just expectations that are either not met or change a little bit. And I think that's what the writer of Luke really wanted to highlight when he showed us a picture of who Jesus was. So my question for us today as we look at these certain passages is, what do we expect of Jesus? What do we expect from him? There's so many things that I think we bring to the character of Jesus as we read the story that maybe don't fit Jesus. And today I'd like to uncover a few of those. So if you will uh, turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Luke 19, and we're going to... Uh, start in verse 28 of 19. It says this, When he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. would cry out. This first scene we have here is someone familiar to us. If we've ever been to church on a Palm Sunday like today, we've probably heard these verses or a, a different version of these verses from another gospel talked about and spoken about. And so there's a lot of expectation in these verses who Jesus is as he's coming in and how much prophecy has been told about just this moment. We just read. A prophecy about this moment, where a coming king will come on the colt, a colt of a donkey, and that he will bring peace to the nations in so many ways that that, that piece of text was an essential part of the hope of Israel that Jesus is ministering to right now. They remember the words of Zechariah. They remember the words of Isaiah, and they're looking forward to their coming king. But not quite this way. See, Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah who came in and kicked Rome out. Uh, Israel as a whole has been under captivity from a bunch of different nations in their history, starting all the way back with Moses at Egypt and then all the way forward to Assyria and Persia and Greece and Rome. All of these huge nations that we think of when we think ancient history all were in charge of Israel at some point. It almost became part of their identity that they were in captivity, and especially at this moment when Rome is ruling the house. So they expect this Messiah that's been promised to them over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And we see characters that show up that kind of look like a Messiah, but aren't quite him. So they're, they're really, really hoping for that guy to come in with his army and his many, many, many fierce warriors of men and to take out Rome and to bring that peace that Zechariah promised to bring all of the world to heal under his name. But that's not at all what happens here. There's no parade. It's Jesus on a donkey. Just picture this for just a second. You're one of the disciples. You're walking towards Jerusalem. Jesus has been talking about going to Jerusalem for a long time. You're getting excited. It's awesome. And then Jesus says, hey, uh, quick thing. I need you to go to this one farm, and I need you to get a donkey. And they're like, oh, what? A donkey? Yeah, yeah, go get the donkey uh, and tell them that the Lord sent you for it. Peter's like, Jesus, you don't understand. When, when my wife sends me to get groceries, I don't come back with what she wants. So are you sure you want a donkey, man? Come on, are you sure that this is what it's supposed to be? He goes, yeah, it's, it's a donkey. Go get it. Tell them, you know, God, God told you to get it. He goes, okay, fine. It's, so... Imagine that in common day, right? You imagine this king, this coming savior is going to ride in in a luxury car, in a Lamborghini, if you will. And then he looks at his disciples and goes, hey, there's this Ford Fiesta down the road that I need you to go grab. Sorry if anybody drops a Ford Fiesta, but I need you to go grab it. It's like, it's like an 08, uh, but it'll do the job. I just need you to go grab it. And bring it to me. It's like, are are you sure? Yeah, say God told you to get it. It's fine. Just imagine you're the disciples at this moment. This is completely unexpected. This is actually kind of a letdown if we really think about it. But they go ahead and do it. And Jesus gets on this donkey, they lay their cloaks on, and he gets this, he definitely gets an entry but not the entry that many are expecting. In fact, the entry is completely opposed by the religious authorities. The Pharisees see his followers saying he's the king in the name of the Lord, saying that he's the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Pharisees would have said, I know what you're thinking, and that's totally wrong. That's actually blasphemous, guys. Stop doing what you're doing. Jesus, tell them to stop. And Jesus said, you don't understand. If they stopped, the rocks would start crying out. If they stopped, you couldn't stop what is to come. Nothing is going to stop this moment. What Zechariah promised is going to happen, whether it looks like what we want it to look like or not. Which leads us to our first point this morning. Jesus isn't who is not who. We expect. Jesus isn't who we expect. The Pharisees expected Jesus to be a teacher that confirmed everything that they had taught up to this point. They, they expected Jesus to be the one that came alongside them and, and reformed Israel in their image and their teaching. The disciples and many of the people in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is ministering to, tax collectors, prostitutes, all of these people that are on the the low end of society expect Jesus to be the one who comes in and kicks out Rome and redeems everyone. Everyone is wrong. Today, I think we suffer from the same kind of thoughts about Jesus. Sometimes we think of Jesus as the man who wants to support our agenda, political, political, Ideological, whatever it may be, we think Jesus is there alongside to support whatever we want in our lives. But that's not who Jesus is. It's not who we expect. Jesus comes along and says, I don't want your ideology. I I want you. I don't want your politicalness. I want you. I want you to follow me. I want you to proclaim that I am the King that I come in the name of the Lord, and that I'm bringing peace. I want you to know peace through me. I don't want you to know peace through me and politics. I don't want you to know peace through me and some other ideology that's on top of that. I simply want you to know me. Jesus isn't what we expect Let's continue on in chapter 19. If you'll go down to verse 45, Jesus continues in this passage to show us that he is not what we expect. Read this with me. Verse 45, we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says this. And he entered the temple. that portrays Jesus in a a loving way, that is always there beside the tax collector, always there beside the the downcast of society, this passage often can stick out like a sore thumb. Really, in any gospel, this passage sticks out like a sore thumb. There is a book that came out not too long ago, and I love this book. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. It's called Gentle and Lowly. It it shows us who Jesus is uh, through the lens uh, of the passage of, of him saying, come to me all you who are here weary, come to me who all you need rest, I am gentle and lowly at heart. And it really explains that characteristic of Jesus and how not only that controls every aspect of our life, but also how we should go forth and be gentle and lowly as Jesus does. And I love that book. And that book doesn't exclude passages like this, but often we become so entranced with a, a character of Jesus that is nothing but lovey dovey and nothing but give hugs to everybody, and Jesus is my best friend. And this guy is not like a friend. <laughs> the guy who comes into the temple, the Jesus that we see in Luke 19 45 through 48, is the Jesus who comes in with a whip, who drives people out, who's angry. This is a passage that when I was a kid I struggled with because I said, wait, this is God. How can he be angry? Isn't that sinful? This doesn't match the Jesus I think of in my head. But it is Jesus. It's all Jesus. He comes in and he sees what the temple has become. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, a place that man could reconcile himself to God. So many, I'm reading through uh, the book of Leviticus this year. I choose a a book of the Bible to read uh, every year. And for some reason, the Spirit led me to Leviticus this year. I'm praying that I can continue. It's a lot. But there's so many things in Leviticus that point to reconciling with God, coming and and making peace with the Lord, coming and offering offering for your sin, for sacrifice. And that's what the temple was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a place where we could... Have a relationship with the Lord, continue in that. And Jesus walks in and sees it has been made not only blemished, but unholy with greed. The one place that is supposed to be sanctified above everything else, is supposed to be holy above everything else in society, has become a place for people to peddle their craft and steal money from those who don't need stealing money from. Makes Jesus angry and rightfully so. Jesus sees how they're treating his father. Jesus sees the 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 whole reason that he's going on his mission, which is obedience to his father, and sees these people basically spitting in the face of that father. And he gets extremely mad. He gets violently mad. He kicks people out. I think the reason, again, this makes us feel uncomfortable is because we're not used to seeing a Jesus who's mad, who's angry, who takes sin seriously if we really think about it. But Jesus takes this very seriously. Jesus takes his love for his father seriously. I'm a student minister, so I quote music quite a lot, especially Christian music. And uh, it's not cool anymore, Alan. Uh, I co-Christian music and kids don't get it. But uh, there is a specific Christian rapper that I like a lot. Uh, he's kinda, I've kind of grown up with him, so his music has kind of grown up with me. It's not necessarily student ministry music anymore. But his name is Shobaraka. And he's got a lot of interesting music. And in a, uh, a song called Maybe Both, he says this. It's funny how some people see the Lord. Some see him as a pacifist, and some see him with a sword. The Lord who hated sin showed grace to the thief, saved the lonely prostitute from being stoned in the street. He was holy, but he hung with the sinful. He drove out the wicked by flipping over tables in the temple. He took a wrongful death, yet he remained silent. But he said he's coming back, and he is bringing violence. Many people isolate him just to make him fit their cause, never too involved in a greater context at all. So, are there two Christs and they're totally unrelated or or maybe is there just one Christ and he's pretty complicated? See, we understand Christ in, in one sphere, but he's much more complicated than that. We look, as I said earlier, we try to fit Jesus into our mold. We try to fit Jesus into what we want him to be or or whatever our ideology is, but he doesn't. And this passage just simply proves that he doesn't want you to, to put him into a mold. He's very clearly God. He's very clearly angry at sin, but loves a sinner He's very clearly a man who was persecuted and crushed, but also never abandoned. He's a man who conquered the grave, conquered death, and is coming back. Often we, when we think of Jesus, we don't think of how he's portrayed in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a very weird picture. Go, go read some of the passages in Revelation that describe Jesus, and you get a whole kind of really weird painting picture that you can think of, if you can think of it. But rest assured, he's coming back. And when he comes back, it, it will not be a, a peaceful kumbaya moment. It will be a moment where holiness is held above everything else. His love for his church is absolutely there. We'll never be able to neglect that, especially as his church. But as his church, we should never neglect his holiness either. Jesus isn't what we expect because he doesn't fit the mold of our expectations ever. Finally, let's look at Luke chapter 20. Look at verses 21 Through twenty six. Background of this passage: He's just told a few parables, and they have decided the Pharisees and the scribes and the many other people have decided we're going to trip Jesus up. We're going to figure out how to get him uh, to criminalize him to make sure that he uh, stops teaching the way he does. And so they ask him a question that was extremely controversial. Uh, they get into the realms of politics with Jesus. Not a good idea. Honestly, I don't know if I'd ever want to argue with Jesus or really put Jesus to the test. But these guys love doing it, and Jesus, I think, loves showing them who's boss. So let's look at verse 21 of uh, chapter 20. It says this. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, "'Show me a denarius. "'Whose likeness and inscription does it have?' And they said, "'Caesar's.' He said to them, "'Then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. See so they, they planned to trip him up in a big, big way. Because if Christ had said, ah, that's still mine, he would have been committing treason against the emperor of Rome, which is punishable by death. And for him, certainly, it would have probably led to death on a cross, But Jesus knew something that the Pharisees didn't, and that is that they're just always trying to trip him up. He considered, and it was like, okay, guys, yeah, I hear the flattery, the first truth. We know that you're a teacher that teaches unpartially. We know that you teach truly. So really difficult question. If you can answer your best, that would be great, Jesus. What about paying taxes to Caesar? What do you think about that? Sometimes I think we don't understand how loaded of a statement that is, although no one enjoys paying taxes, I hope. Uh, Jesus, especially in his time, all right, these taxes were something that were frankly unjust. Many people in Israel were overtaxed and overburdened. Uh, the emperor uh, was constantly trying to get taxes to fund a war or fund a whatever building project he had, and it was always very big people looking down on the small, and Israel, especially the Israelites, were the smallest of the small, and they felt that way. And so asking Jesus this question was loaded in, in multiple ways. First, Jesus, do you think that the tax is fair? that's a bad question to get asked do you jesus do you think that what we're paying taxes to is holy jesus do you think the taxes that we're paying to uh, to caesar are, do you think that's right do you think that's all of these are in this one big question and jesus knew that but jesus gives them as much of a practical answer as he gives them a theological answer he says show me a coin And they pull out the little coin, and it has a face of Caesar on it. He goes, okay, pay that to Caesar, and pay what to God is God's. Now, he's both answered their question completely rightly, but also answered their question uh, in the way that they were not expecting at all. Yes, pay the tax. Just do it. It's not that big a deal. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. But notice these words. Verse 24, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? Caesar's. See, he's not only pointing to the reality that taxes belong to Caesar, but he's pointing to the reality that everyone made in the image, the likeness of God belongs to God. He's saying, yeah, give Caesar his due. It really doesn't matter to me because I own everything. Everything. I own Caesar. Caesar is giving that tax because I've made it so. Caesar is the emperor of Rome. He's the emperor of Israel because I have made it so. Therefore, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's, which is everything. When we think back, this isn't the first time Jesus has been tempted to, to give authority to someone else. We look back at the temptation in the desert Satan, if you bow before me, all the kingdoms of the world will belong to you. Jesus, knowing full well that they don't belong to Satan in reality, they belong to him, says, go away, man. Just leave. He basically does the same thing to the Pharisees and their spies. And the reason that Jesus says this is because he's helping people understand something much bigger than just taxes, much bigger than greed in the temple, much bigger than even a, a riding on a, a cult in the middle of the street of Jerusalem. And that is what Jesus is asking of everyone. He's looking at his disciples, and he's constantly, constantly, constantly asking you, what, what do you think I ask of you? Just a few chapters earlier, we see the rich young ruler The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I have done everything. I followed every commandment. What does it take to follow you? Often we look at that passage like that man is prideful, and I don't think that's very true. I think the man earnestly wanted to follow Jesus. I think he was showing Jesus his life to say, look, I've done these things for God. I love God. I want to follow God. How can I follow you? And Jesus says, that's good. That is amazing. Your faith is great. Go sell everything you have and follow me. Jesus doesn't just ask for some things. He asks for everything, which leads us to our last point. Jesus asks what we don't expect. Many of us, if we've grown, in church, grown up in church, we realize the truth that Jesus expects and asks of us everything that we are, but do we live in that reality? I know we, we think and we, we know what the gospel demands of us, it demands that he, we make him Savior and Lord of our life. It is good to do those things, it is good to think that way, it is good to strive to make him Lord of our lives, but have we really given him everything? Do we live in the reality, as Jesus just pointed out to the Pharisees and their spies, that everything belongs to God in the first place? That to to admit that Jesus is Lord of our life is just simply submitting to his leadership rather than rebelling against it. That leadership's always there. That lordship is always there. That authority is always there. We get the choice to submit to it or not. Just as the Israelites did with Caesar. Just as the disciples did with Jesus. But Jesus asks everything of us, think of everything in your life. Does anyone ask that of you? I hope not. It would seem unfair. If my wife asked everything of me, that would be a very one sided marriage. I would be doing everything for her and not for the Lord, not for the family, not for my community. She gets a, a big part of my life and I get a big part of hers, and that's how the Lord designed it, but she doesn't get everything. The Lord has to get everything. But Jesus asks that exactly. When the rich young ruler responds, he walks away. He realizes that there's the one thing. He realizes, no, Jesus, you're not the one I want to follow in any ways. The Pharisees are the same way you're really not the one we want to follow. We can't give up our laws. We can't give up our ways. We can't admit that you're the king. The disciples at this point definitely can't give up the dream that the Messiah is coming to kick out Rome, that that they will be elevated to positions of high power in the kingship of Jesus. But Jesus is asking every single person around him, To give up everything. What do you need to give up today? What is the Lord asking of you? Here in this community, in Martin City, what are you giving of yourself? And this isn't some moral lesson. If we make it a moral lesson, we're no better than the Pharisees. This is a gospel lesson Because we know that after Jesus says, give everything to me, he follows that up and gives everything of him for us. He gave everything, gave his life so that we could give everything to him. So that we here in this moment, in this day, in Martin City, could give everything to this community for the gospel, to each other for the gospel, to Christ because of the gospel. Maybe you stand here today and you've heard the gospel a billion times, and I hope you have. It's good news. But maybe you're realizing, I haven't given everything. I trust Jesus as Savior, certainly, but as Lord, I'm not so sure. Maybe you're, you're like the rich young ruler who've, who's done everything right up to this point. Lived a good life. Followed the commandments as best as you could. But now you're faced with the reality of there's, there's one thing you haven't given up. The Lord asks everything of us. And that's not what we expect. But it is what he is. And let's think just about that for a second. Why wouldn't we? We have a Savior who who gave everything, not only gave everything to uh, help us out of our sin, but to redeem us out of the things we don't want to give up. You realize that what you don't want to give up, and I'm preaching this just as much as myself, what I don't want to give up keeps me from living a, a better life with Jesus. What I don't want to give to Christ is a detriment to my relationship with him. The thing that I was created for was created to be in relationship with him. And the thing that I don't want to give keeps me from that good and whole relationship. I can get by, sure. The Lord promises grace. And we should be, gosh, we're so blessed to have that. But what sin are you holding back? What resources in your life, time, gifts, are you holding back? What areas is he calling you to be obedient in that you refuse to? Jesus shows us over and over and over that he's not who we expect. And thank God for that. If he was who we expected, we wouldn't have the hope that we needed. He would fail us tomorrow, just like what we put our hope in, outside of Jesus. If you've ever put your your hope in an ideology that's outside of Scripture, outside of Jesus, you know very, very full and well that someday that has disappointed you. Yeah. (laughs) Just look at politics, just for a second. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Doesn't matter what you were raised. You've didn't been disappointed by politics before. Look at your job. It may be the best job ever. You may be the thing that God created you to do on this earth. It's disappointed you. I'm a I'm a minister, and and I get disappointed a lot. Look at your relationships. Many of us have excellent, healthy relationships in the Lord. And yet even those, if we put all of our stock in those relationships, they disappoint us. Put your expectations on what Jesus says he is. What he shows us he is through the gospel. And there won't be disappointment there'll be nothing but hope. Because even after Calvary, the most hopeless-looking situation in the world, he conquered that hopeless situation through death. Jesus is not at all who we expect. And he asks many things of us that we don't. But he's good. And we have hope in him. And we can live every day in that goodness and in that hope. And if you don't do that, I invite you today to do that. Pray where you are. Come talk to Alan. Come talk to me. We want to introduce you into that hope, into that goodness that keeps us going every day. You guys are doing hard work. Church planning is not easy, but it's good because Jesus is here. And it's hopeful because Jesus is here. And that's what keeps us going. Would you pray with me this morning?